Yes, we're open. Living Faith with Needham UCC, a sermon podcast from the Congregational Church of Needham United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you're invited and welcome. This sermon for Sunday, September 26th, 2021, is entitled Fight. It's the third part in a nine-part series, putting the gospel of Jesus Christ in conversation with activist author Valerie Kaur's book, See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love. This sermon in particular is a reflection on a reading from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find out more about our open and affirming ministries at the Congregational Church of Needham, United Church of Christ, simply head over to our website, www.needhamucc.org. Thank you. Friends, in today's sermon, we continue in our nine-part series, putting the gospel of Jesus Christ in conversation with the book, See No Stranger a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love by Valerie Kaur. Today's sermon in particular is a reflection on a reading from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. Let's listen to these what may be familiar words for us and listen for a new word, a living word from God in these words from Luke, chapter 19. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as Jesus had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, order your disciples to stop. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Beloved, God is still speaking to the world and to us. May our hearts be open to listen and to respond. Amen. I had a rather strange upbringing faith-wise, though perhaps it's not all that unusual. You see, I was raised Presbyterian 
and I attended a Presbyterian church most every Sunday with my family, third pew from the front on the right. But five days a week, I attended an Episcopal school from first through 12th grade with chapel every day. So you can see a bit of attention. Now, I'm not going to assume that you know all of the little differences between the ways Presbyterians and Episcopalians do church. Frankly, most denominational differences boil down to family arguments a long time ago. And most of those having to do more with taste and habit and politics than matters of weighty theological import. Not all, but most. But as we all know, there are no fights like family fights. Anyway, attending chapel every day meant that I was exposed to more hymns than perhaps most other children my age. And to this day, I can still call the numbers of some of my very favorite hymns out of the old Episcopal hymnal, Vintage 1940. Number 599, Ye Watchers and Ye Holy Ones. Number 600, Ye Holy Angels Bright. And there are lyrics that I learned as a child, even before I myself could reliably read, that still stand out in my memory, especially that hymn, about the turtle. Maybe you know it. Lead on, O kingly turtle. Which, of course, I later learned was actually titled Lead on, O king eternal. So eventually I got that cleared up. But the rest of the lyrics of that particular hymn remained something of a mystery for me. Lead on, O king eternal, the day of March has come. Henceforth, in fields of conquest, your tents will be our home. Through days of preparation, your grace has made us strong. And now, O King Eternal, we lift our battle song. Which seemed something of a piece with another confusing to me, chapel standard, onward Christian soldiers. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banner go. That didn't make a lot of sense to me as a second grader, or a third grader, or a fourth grader, or on and on. These memorable militant lyrics were confusing to me on at least two fronts. One, the Jesus they described was different than the Jesus that I was learning about in chapel and in church. The Jesus that I was coming to know didn't seem like much of a fighter. In fact, I got the impression that he wouldn't really want me to be a fighter either, as in my limited understanding at the time, being at war with my neighbor would make it difficult to love my neighbor as Jesus clearly instructed. And two, from the point of view of my safe and sheltered upbringing, I literally could not imagine going to war with anyone or any sort of fighting really on a scale any larger than the everyday tussles of a neighborhood full of boys my age. That 
cognitive dissonance between the Prince of Peace and his Christian soldiers stayed with me as I grew in years and in faith. That discomfort only grew stronger as I learned about the violent abuses of the church in the Crusades and in the Inquisition and the subjugation and genocide of indigenous peoples all around the globe and on and on and down and down, all in the name of Christ. By the time I entered seminary, I had decided that such militant language was outdated, unnecessary, and unhelpful, if not downright dangerous. I would work hard to banish it from my own theological vocabulary and lean instead into the language of forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace. And then I met people. I met people whose own life circumstances, so different from my own privileged position, gave them good reason to fight. Folks, in fact, are who are required to fight for their rights and their fair share and even just their human dignity every single day. Folks who know in their bones what Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. put into these words, freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. In particular, through my relationship with the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries. You've heard me refer to them as my African-American Pentecostal queer-affirming church friends. Through them, I came to know Black and Brown and poorer folks. But because of their lived experience on the margins of our dominant, dominating white supremacist hyper-capitalist culture needed and still need to know that as Moses told the escaping Hebrews caught between Pharaoh's army and the waters of the Red Sea, God is fighting for you. Not just God loves you, God wishes you well from a distance, and God will be here to help you pick up the pieces after, all of which is still true. But the Lord your God goes before you and will fight on your behalf. As it says in Deuteronomy 1.30, and again in Isaiah 45.2, where God's own self declares, I will go before you and level the mountains. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I didn't understand that language of fighting growing up because I didn't understand myself as having any reason to fight or anything to fight for. Things in the world might need some tweaking, sure, here and there, but by and large, things in my world were pretty good. But I gradually began to realize that perhaps the reason I didn't need or even want God to be a warrior, Jesus to be a fighter, was because of my own social location and how that put me and mine on the other side, the wrong side of those doors of bronze, those bars of iron that God would break down. So, of course, in my, let's call it maturing faith, 
The whole idea of faithful fighting, of Christian soldiers engaged in the struggle on behalf of the gospel would necessarily be taboo. I'm grateful then to those new relationships with people unlike myself from outside my social experience, as I am grateful to Valerie Kaur, author of See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love, for opening my eyes to more, to a more realistic and more nuanced view. The fight impulse is ancient and fundamental, she says. It is biological. Sometimes we fight to protect who or what we love from those who would destroy it. Other times we fight with those we love to protect them or ourselves. In other words, my words, fighting is not just part of what makes us human, but along with our impulses to fear and flight, it's part of what keeps us alive individually and as a species. To be sure, like all God's gifts, like sex, like free will itself, the gift of fighting, and I'm aware of how odd that phrase sounds, saying it aloud, but the gift of fighting can be used for good or for ill, for healthy, helpful purposes or Un. See above, re crusades, pogroms, manifest destiny, lynchings, voter suppression, transphobia, etc., etc., etc. So the real question, that real and nuanced question, isn't are we going to fight, but how are we going to fight? And against what? For what? And alongside whom? As Valerie puts it succinctly, we must summon the wisdom to discern between threats that are real rather than imagined and respond in ways that give life rather than real death. Friends, there is a word for this moment. If from our places of privilege, we choose not to fight, We need to understand that our silence, our limited peace, serves to perpetuate the status quo and the harms it inflicts on our neighbors and ultimately, if only vicariously, on us as well. We are diminished as well. If we choose to fight for the gospel, for justice, peace, and compassion, for liberation and life, we need to do it thoughtfully, prayerfully and well. For even the best of ends do not justify the worst of means. As Dr. King taught, in the final analysis, means and ends must cohere because the end is preexistent in the means, and ultimately destructive means cannot bring about constructive ends. In other words, if we're going to fight Pick the way we fight carefully because how we do is literally what we do, not just a way we get there. And make no mistake, Dr. King was a warrior, despite the ways that we have watered his legacy down. 
He dedicated his whole life, even gave his life in the fight for justice against racism, militarism, and poverty, but he picked his fight and his way of fighting carefully and prayerfully. He dedicated himself to being a nonviolent warrior, which is, again, a phrase that has an odd, unfamiliar ring to it, even here in church, maybe especially here. Precisely because it was so unfamiliar and so misunderstood in his own day, Dr. King took great pains to articulate his vision of the nonviolent warrior way so others could follow in his footsteps and even go further. In his 1958 book, Stride Toward Freedom, The Montgomery Story, he gave us these guideposts, and I summarize. One, nonviolent resistance means neither cowardice nor passivity. It is not passive resistance to evil. It is active nonviolent resistance to evil. Two, the goal of nonviolent struggle is not to defeat anyone, but to create the beloved community that includes everyone. Three, nonviolence resi- nonviolent resistance attacks evil rather than the evildoer. Four, nonviolent resistance involves not responding to violence with violence. And five, the nonviolent resistor avoids not only physical violence, but also spiritual violence, refusing to hate the opponent and increase hatred in the universe. What would Dr. King make of our Facebook posts today? Dr. King was a warrior, and I believe Jesus was a warrior too, like this. I believe we see the warrior way of Jesus at work in his entry into Jerusalem. The story we read from the gospel according to Luke today, the story we tell each and every year on Palm Sunday. A story that we have so papered over with generations of palm leaves and Sunday school processions that we may no longer be able to see the forest for the palm trees, so to speak. Because this story of Jesus, God's prophet from the margins, entering into the capital city of the secular and sacred powers of his day, of empire and domination, is a story of confrontation. It is a story of struggle. It is a fight. Only Jesus picks his fight in his way of fighting. Because the closer we read, the more obvious it becomes that just like Rosa Parks keeping her seat on that bus in Montgomery, Palm Sunday was not a spontaneous uprising, but rather a carefully planned protest. It was political theater, a symbolic event staged to show the contrast between the way of the gospel and business as usual. Jesus and his disciples used their bodies to block the highway and interrupt commerce, does that sound familiar, in a demonstration of the difference between the way of the world and the way the world should be. 
Let me run down the evidence in Luke's account of this day. Jesus starts out from the Mount of Olives, the location prophesied in the book of Zechariah to be the starting point of God's ultimate redemption and transformation of the world, something that I was today years old when I learned. Jewish witnesses to Jesus' triumphal entry into the city may have recalled stories of the great Jewish hero, Judas Maccabeus, entering Jerusalem after defeating their Syrian oppressors in the second century BCE. No one would have missed that at the very same time that Jesus was riding in one way, over on the opposite side of town, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea under the Roman occupation, was riding in in quite another, surrounded by troops intended to keep the peace during the Passover observance. Jesus, of course, is not surrounded by troops, but by crowds of disciples and everyday people, even the very poorest of the poor, and he chooses to make his entrance on a donkey, not on a war horse or a chariot. The sarcasm would have been palpable, the satire. And the crowds around Jesus cry out for peace, peace, but not the Pax Romana, the absence of conflict enforced at the point of a sword, but the shalom of God, which is wholeness and well-being, the end of oppression and the healing of division. Because at the cobblestones on the road underfoot, and the great stones of the temple edifice and the marble slabs of the state house could shout out, as Jesus says, what stories would they tell of war and exploitation, oppression, and bloodshed? My God. Jesus doesn't just stop traffic. He weeps over the city. And he goes on to overturn the tables in the temple and make a stand against the status quo, not in order to defeat anyone but to call the beloved community into being, to say, here, this, this is the way. This was his fight because Jesus was a warrior. And Jesus calls us to be warriors too, to be what Valerie Kaur, coming from her own sick faith tradition, calls warrior sages. If we've got the privilege, friends, not to have to fight for ourselves, our rights, and our basic human dignity, then we have the privilege to use that privilege to fight alongside others who do, who must. We don't have to look any further than the daily news to find them. Immigrants risking it all for a chance at a better life. Sick folks drowning in medical debt if they have access to treatment at all. Poor folks being nickeled and dimed to death, black and brown folks being over-policed to death, communities in our own country and around the world already suffering the ill effects of climate change. Pick a cause, any cause. Pick a neighbor, any neighbor. Then gird your loins, screw your courage to the sticking place and fight the good fight the good way, the gospel way, 
the best way we can. And when we stumble and fall and fail, trust in the grace of God to pick you up, dust you off, and set you on the road again. Send you back in with an orange slice and some Gatorade, ready to keep going. God sets aside all the privilege of heaven in order to put some skin in the game, our game, our struggle in Jesus. And Jesus calls us to do the very same, to wade into the struggles of the world, to put our lives on the line, to take up our crosses and help our neighbors shoulder theirs. Jesus calls us to be warriors in the way of justice, peace, and compassion. Remember, as the saying goes, the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who, in a period of moral crisis, maintained their neutrality. And in my own addendum, right next to them are those who offered only their thoughts and prayers on behalf of those in need. I don't have to believe in hell to believe that that is true. Beloved, if you've heard the word of God preached here today, remember to give all honor and glory to our one God, creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit. Amen.